So what about like when it came to authority? So who or what was the ultimate authority and how you were saved and who made the rules and how you accessed God? I feel like there's always that underlying like the Pope was or the bishops, but you never really had access to them. So it was definitely the priest at our church. Well, I would say it was the priest. Um, he was in charge of forgiving your sins. Um, he was the one who could give you communion. They were the ones that were kind of the um, filter, for lack of a better term. So they're the ones that you saw for communion. Um, they're the ones that you saw confession. You went and confessed your sins and everything went through them. Pretty much you got to Jesus through the priest. That's how you, or God, didn't really talk to God on my own or to Jesus on my own. I didn't pray to him. I would say the prayers, I had a lot of prayers memorized. If we had to ask for forgiveness for something, we had to go through him. We couldn't just speak to Christ. There was no personal relationship. It was always go to your priest. Uh, if you wanna, you know, talk to God, yes, you can talk to God, but you know, go through a confession to tell the pastor or the priest, excuse me, you know, your sins so you can do your penance after that. It just seemed like a lot of, um, a lot of hoops to jump through. Uh, and I don't mean any disrespect by that. I just know um, the way I felt going through that. I just, again, there had to be an easier way to, you know, talk to God. Well, it's good to see you this morning. For those of you who were here last week, welcome back. I'm actually surprised you showed back up this week, uh, but I'm, I'm glad you did. For those of you here for the very first time, you're probably watching that thinking, what the heck did I just get myself into today? Uh, last week, we started this series and started by saying, if the God of the Bible is the one true God, which I obviously believe that he is, then life's most important question is, what must I do to be saved? You know, a lot of people say this in different ways. Like, what must I do to be saved from my penalty of sin or from hell and be saved into eternal life with God or be saved into heaven? And unfortunately, two divergent answers are given by the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Protestant Church is what we are. And if you weren't here last week, you don't know what that means. I'll talk about more about that in just a second to review. But listen, since we live in Omaha, which is predominantly Catholic, these type, two divergent views between the Catholic Church and Protestant Church on, on the answer to this question, it's created a lot of for many of you, because many of you grew up in a home that was Catholic, and even if not Catholic in practice, at, at least by name. I actually say, I think about 60% of relevant is what I would call decatholicized Catholics. You, you, you grew up Catholic, you got baptized as a baby, you went through CCD, you got confirmed, did your first communion, you know, and then at some point in time, you just stopped going. Either your parents made you, didn't make you go anymore, or you, you got in high school or college, and just like, I didn't want anything to do with it anymore, and then you've always believed in God, and always, you know, believed in Jesus, but you just had just had no interest in that. And then at some point in time, you had an interest in reengaging in, with God and following him. But you don't want to go back to the Catholic Church. But you have a lot of guilt and a lot of confusion, a lot of questions, a lot of fear, a lot of family pressure. You're, you're compelled to do things. You'll have a kid and be like, I need to go back and baptize him. And I'm like, why? And you're like, I, I don't know. I just feel like I need to do that. And so that's the reason why I chose to do this series. Throughout this series, we're trying to answer this question, what must I do to be saved, based on how I believe the writers of the New Testament answered it. Specifically, I'm addressing four topics the Catholic Church teaches about how to get saved and stay saved, you know, how to stay in God's good graces. I'm unpacking them a little bit, and I'm shedding some light on them based on what the writers of Scripture communicated. Now, I know, you know, 
talking about this creates a ton of tension for some of you, and even just, you know, you, you just get all emotional. I saw people squirming last week. Some people, they got up and left in the middle of it. Like, I get all that. And I said last week, I'm not, you can disagree with me all day. It's totally okay. I just would encourage you, like, hey, through this, if, like, you just have some tension welling up in you, you want to throw something at my face, you know, any of that stuff, like, just relax a little bit. You don't need to walk out. You don't need to turn the TV off. I just encourage you just to have an open mind, open heart. What I'm saying, I'm really not even saying. I'm just reading scripture. Go and read scripture for yourself. If you still don't, that's not do. Go talk to a priest and, and ask them these questions and see what they have to say. Because here's what you need to know. My goal is not to bash Catholicism. It's, that's not beneficial for anybody. My goal is not to answer every question there is. I can't possibly do that in this series. My goal is not to act like I know everything because I'm not a Catholic scholar. I'm, and I am definitely not the authority on every subject. And my goal is not to act like we, Relevant Community Church, or the Protestant Church is perfect because we are and the Protestant Church is not. I mean, Protestant Church got all kinds of issues all on our own. So we, we, got, we got to deal with. But my goal in this series is to help all of us who say we're followers of Christ, whether you say you're Catholic or not, grew up Catholic or not, used to be Catholic, say you still are Catholic, have no, never desired to be Catholic. My goal is to help every single person who say there's a follower of Christ to break free from some of the unnecessary guilt and fear and confusion and pressure that many of you either have or are experienced. My, my, my goal is to help all of us take a next step to follow Jesus instead of religious rules so we can experience the life and hope and peace and joy and fulfillment that he can and wants to give when we do. Now listen, I covered a lot last week. I can't possibly recap it all and review it all. So if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back and watch or listen uh, because all these weeks build off each other. However, the one thing I think is worth reviewing is how the heck we got here. And so I just want to give real quick like 30,000 foot fast kind of church history you know, overview here, and I'm leaving a lot of details out just so you know. The events of Jesus' life take place at the beginning of the first century. And before Jesus physically left this earth after his death and resurrection, he established a new covenant with a new group of people whom he called his church. And the Greek term Jesus used that is translated church in the English New Testament is this word ekklesia. Now, this word ecclesia, it's not a religious term. It simply means a gathering, an assembly, a congregation, a community of people united by a common identity, purpose, or mission. When Jesus introduced this term ecclesia that ended up getting translated church in our English New Testament, his followers understood it to mean that they would be a gathering, a community, an assembly of people whose purpose was to be Jesus' hands and feet and carrying on the mission that Jesus came for uh, uh, after he left. The, the mission of proclaiming the good news of Jesus and his death and resurrection and what that means for every single person. And the first church, the first century church, they did this. The first century church was a powerful movement that turned the world upside down. I mean, by the end of the first century, Jesus' apostles, those who had seen him and walked with him and heard him, you know, and interacted with him face to face, Jesus' apostles had taken the message of Jesus throughout the entire Roman Empire. And then in the second century, after all the Jesus' apostles had died, the church continued to grow throughout the Roman Empire as more and more people became followers of Christ. I mean, within 300 years... 
After the events of Jesus' life, there was a local church, a local ecclesia, a local community of Christ followers in every corner of the Roman Empire. Jesus was worshipped in every corner of the Roman Empire, through every part of the known world. Millions of people proclaimed they were followers of, Jesus, of the resurrected Jesus throughout the, throughout the Roman Empire within 300 years but then something happened that caused what began as a movement to become institutional, to become an establishment. We talked about this last week. In, in the early 4th century, Constantine, and you have heard of Constantine, heard of him in, you know, in, in your uh, history class. He was a Roman emperor in, in 313 AD. Constantine became a follower of Christ. He legalized Christianity and made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, up to this point in history, Christianity had been outlawed because followers of Christ insisted that Jesus was their king and not the Roman emperor. Consequently, the church suffered immense persecution for the first 300 years of existence. Followers of Christ, they were barred from positions of authority. They were ostracized in the community. They were charged with random crimes. They were stripped of property. Gathering together, it was difficult. It was dangerous. But with Constantine, everything changed. And it was at this time Rome began to use the name Catholic for the Christian religion. And Catholic simply means universal. Now, for the first 300 years after Jesus, the, the church was on the fringes of society. But the moment this happened with Constantine in the 4th century, the church became married to the Roman government. And when that happened, things just started to go south. Suddenly, it was fashionable to be Christian. Like before Constantine, it said the church was on the outskirts of, of society and they, they were relatively informal. They, they met in homes. But after Constantine's conversion, as powerful people professed belief in Jesus, they brought with them the ways that they practiced worship when they worshiped other gods. And the church was greatly influenced by that and began for the first time in history to incorporate things like incense and ornate clothing and choirs and pageantry and gold and altars. Furthermore, worship became formal at this point. And a hierarchical priesthood started to form that set clergy above and separated from the rest of the ecclesia, from the rest of the church, which relegated the rest of the church to mere spectators. Salvation. Salvation was no longer about what you believed about Jesus, but about having a proper relationship with the church and Rome, which was married. And the church began at this point in time to begin to build huge buildings for the first time ever, dedicated to Christian martyrs. And the Romans called each of these gathering places a basilica. And a basilica is a Latin word used to denote a public building. And you guys, this is crazy. Within a decade after starting to build these basilicas, Jesus' ecclesia ceased to be a movement because the church became synonymous with a location and not a people on mission for Jesus. Not a people being Jesus' hands and feet in the world. Not a people operating as the body of Christ. And this created a new dynamic within the church. And the new dynamic was whoever controlled the building controlled the scriptures. And if you could control the scriptures, you can control the people. I mean, you got to understand, by the Middle Ages in Europe, the Bible was literally chained to the pulpit. Try to explain that to the first century church. See, the church, it became political, and church leaders were given power 
and authority, and they sought more power and more authority. And this led to an era of church history that can only be described as horrific. One that we should never try to justify. And then, then in the 16th century, an event referred to as the Reformation occurred. In short, the Reformation started because some leaders within the Catholic Church, like Martin Luther, accused Catholic, the Catholic Church of tradition and doctrine that was not, or excuse me, that was contradictory to, what, to the writers of Scripture. And through a series of horrific and ugly events, the Catholic Church accused these leaders of heresy and they excommunicated them. And what we now call the Protestant Church was born. And a Protestant, the Protestant church is any Christian church that separated from the Church of Rome during the Reformation in the 16th century or any group or any church that's descended from them. Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, Evangelical, us, we're a Protestant church. Out of the Reformation, the title Roman Catholic Church became the official name for the Church of Rome, whose head is the Pope, I'll talk about him in a second, and is still used as the official name today. One of the fundamental points that caused the Reformation and that Catholics and Protestants have been divided on ever since is around the question, what must I do to be saved? Last week we talked about that we, along with the Catholic Church, believe that we all need saved for our violation of sin against Holy Creator God. We, along with the Catholic Church, uh, uh, believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He proved that through his death and resurrection and that his sacrifice on the cross made our salvation possible. We, along with the Catholic Church, believe that the only way a person can be saved is by God's grace. What we disagree on is how God's grace is received. The Catholic Church teaches God dispenses the, the grace necessary for salvation through the sacraments of the Catholic Church, of which they say there are seven. Baptism, the Eucharist, confirmation, confession to a priest, talk about more about that in a second, anointing the six, formerly known as extreme unction, marriage and ordination or holy orders. By the 16th century, the Catholic Church had adopted these seven sacraments as official document. And the Catholic Church teaches that each sacrament dispenses God's grace, but that no one sacrament has enough grace to save you. Thus, a person must take advantage of as many means of grace as possible to them. And in the end, the question will be whether one has accumulated enough grace to be saved. What must I do to be saved? Well, according to the Catholic Church, we're saved by God's grace, offered because of Jesus' sacrifice, but that's not enough. According to the Catholic Church, it's Jesus and. Jesus and the Catholic Church, Jesus and God's grace dispensed through the Catholic Church, Jesus and the Catholic Church's channel of grace, Jesus and the sacraments, Jesus and what we do, our works. The problem with this is that it stands in stark contrast to how the writers of Scripture answered the question, what must I do to be saved? We discovered last week that over a hundred times the writers of the New Testament state, we are saved by grace through faith alone. Over a hundred times the writers of the New Testament state, it's because of God's grace. It, it, because of God's grace, faith in Jesus plus nothing is all that's required to accept God's grace, is all that's required for salvation. We're not saved by works, by baptism, by church membership, you know, by communion, by giving money, by morality, 
you know, by a sacrament, and we're not saved by faith plus works. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus alone. Saying, Jesus, confessing, I need saved for my violation of sin, and I believe you can be that Savior because of your death and resurrection. So I'm putting my faith in you. We talked about this last week. Asking you to be the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life, my Savior and my Lord. The question is, how can the Catholic Church teach and believe something that seems to contradict the writers of the New Testament? Like, where did the idea of sacraments even come from? Furthermore, where did so many of the other things within the Catholic Church come from? Because you don't have to be a Catholic scholar to see that there's a lot of doctrines, a lot of rules, a lot of regulations, a lot of beliefs, a lot of practices within the Catholic Church that are not found in the New Testament, that, but that are taught by the Catholic Church that they must be followed, obeyed, and believed in order to get saved and stay saved. Things like belief in purgatory, praying to Mary, the necessity of holy water for healing and cleansing, mortal sins versus regular sins, the rosary, not eating fish on Fridays during Lent, confession to a priest, receiving last rites, the doctrine of indulgences, which means giving a sum of money or performing a practice prescribed by the Catholic Church to be granted remission from sin. These are just to name a few. Like, where did all of this stuff come from? Well, I'm going to do the best job I can to answer that today in the shortest way possible. But what you've got to know before I get into this is the answer to these questions is actually another fundamental point of division that caused the Reformation in the 16th century and that Catholics and Protestants have been divided on ever since. And guys, this is a different type of sermon than I ever give. Like, I'm just going to just, just throw out a lot of information to you. Uh, I don't even know how practical it's going to be. And then afterwards, I'm just going to read a lot of scripture at you. I never read scripture at you. I stay in one passage of scripture. I believe in practical biblical teaching. I ain't doing that today. I'm just going to read a lot of passages at you because I want scripture to speak for itself instead of you thinking that they are my words that are being spoken. So leading up to the Reformation in the 16th century, four doctrines had emerged within Catholicism. Uh, the first one I covered last week and I touched on again earlier. The Catholic Church is Christ's one true church. Therefore, there is no salvation outside the Catholic Church because God dispenses his grace through the Catholic Church's channels of grace called the sacraments. The, the sacraments are how God's graving, saving grace is received according to the Catholic Church. Which means those who ignore the sacraments are lost and those who accept them are saved because salvation is in the hands of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Catechism States, it is through Christ's Catholic Church alone, which is the all-embracing means of salvation, that the fullness of the means of salvation can be obtained. And then in 1823, the Pope declared, anyone who is separated from the Roman Catholic Church has no part in eternal life. Secondly, the Pope is the head of Christ's church. Now, in the New Testament, the highest position of leadership in the church is elder, which means overseer or shepherd. In some English translations of the Greek New Testament, elder gets translated bishop. As I said, er as I said earlier, in the 4th century with Constantine, a hierarchical priesthood of bishops or elders formed that set them above everybody else. And then... In the year 395, the Bishop of Rome began to use the word pope for the very first time. The word pope means father. 
Over the next few centuries, the Pope declared himself the Lord or the head of Christ's church. He declared himself the vicar of Christ. And as the vicar of Christ, he has the authority over Christ's church, which the only church according to Christ's church is the Catholic church. He has authority over Christ's church, authority over souls, and authority, authority over kings of the earth. What's interesting is between the years 1377 and 1417, there were actually three popes. There was one in Rome, one in Italy, and one on the other end of France. Each one of themselves declared themselves the vicar of Christ and pronounced curses on the other ones. Now the pope in Rome won out and has been viewed as the one true pope ever since. The Catholic Church teaches that any resistance to the pope's authority results in direct access to hell. And they teach that because in the year 1870, the Catholic Church declared that the Pope is infallible, which means without error when he speaks from the pontifical chair in the Vatican City, meaning that whatever the Pope speaks from that chair concerning doctrine, belief, practice, salvation is authoritative and it supersedes Scripture. Third, the Catholic priesthood, which includes cardinals, bishops, priests under the Pope, is the mediators between God and people. In the year 500, Catholic bishops began wearing special clothing that distinguished them from the rest of the church. And by the 16th century, the Catholic priesthood is officially established. Priests are in submission to the authority of the bishops and the pope. The, the priests are presented as visible representations, uh, visible representatives of Jesus who serve as mediators between God and humanity because they have special and unique access to God. Furthermore, in the 16th century, confession was officially named one of the seven sacraments. According to the Catholic Church, confession of sin to a priest is mandatory at least once a year and is necessary for salvation. To not confess to a priest once a year is considered a mortal sin. Priests also became the dispensers of, uh, of the Catholic sacraments. Therefore, they are the dispensers of God's grace. The result is that the priest wields the power of salvation and that it's through them for how you access God and his saving grace. Furthermore, in the year 1546, personal interpretation of the Bible was forbidden and reserved for the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church alone. The question is why? Now, I don't have time to get into that today. I'm going to let you answer that one on your own. It wasn't until 1962 that the Catholic lady were invited to read the Bible but are not allowed to interpret it. In the catechism, Catholic Catechism, it states, The task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the Pope and to the bishops in communion with him. Fourth and finally, the Catholic Church possesses equal authority to that of the Bible. In the year 1545, the Pope declared that, the Roman, Catholic, that, that Roman Catholic Church tradition and Roman Catholic Church doctrine possess equal authority to that of Scripture. And why? Because the Pope is the head of Christ's church and his words are infallible and authoritative. Now, as I said before, these four doctrines are some of the fundamental points of division that caused the Reformation in the 16th century and that Catholics and Protestants have been divided on ever since. 
Furthermore, these doctrines, Catholic doctrines, answer the question, how can the Catholic Church teach and believe something that seems to contradict the writers of the New Testament? These, these answer the questions, where did the idea of sacraments even come from? These answer the questions, where did so many of the other doctrines and beliefs and practices and rules and liturgy within the Catholic Church come from? If you would take these, these four Catholic doctrines and kind of just narrow them down to one statement, the statement would be this. The Pope is the head of Christ's church. The Catholic church is the authority. The Pope is the head of Christ's church. The Catholic church is the authority. The question is, is this statement God-ordained? Is it true? Is it truth? If you believe that it is, by the way, that the Pope is the head of Christ's church and the Catholic church is, is the authority, if you believe that that is truth, I encourage you as fast as possible to engage fully in the Catholic church. Because if you don't, you will have justified fear and guilt for the rest of your life because according to the Catholic church, you are living outside of God's saving grace. However, I believe you can leave all that fear behind. And I believe you can leave all that guilt behind. Because this is not what's communicated through the writers of the New Testament. What I want to do for the rest of our time is look at three truths from the writers of the New Testament that stand in stark contrast to these four Catholic doctrines. And as I said before, this is a little bit different. I'm just going to present these three truths. I'm going to read a lot of different passages without much commentary and I'm just going to let scripture speak for itself so you don't think that I'm somehow making this up. First of all, Jesus plus no one is the head of his church. The apostle Paul, who wrote a majority of our New Testament and met Jesus face to face, so I, he would probably know. The apostle Paul wrote in Romans 10, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, will be saved. Catholic Church teaches that the Catholic Church is Christ's one true church. The writers of the New Testament state that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone, and that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus by asking him to be the forgiver of their sins and leader of their life is part of Jesus' ecclesia, is part of Jesus' church. Paul also wrote in Ephesians 1, the power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The Catholic Church teaches the Pope is the head of Christ's church. The writers of the New Testament declare Jesus plus no one is the head of his church. The writers of the New Testament declare faith in him as Christ, as Lord, as Savior is the cornerstone of his church. The writers of the New Testament declare that submission to Jesus' authority as Lord alone is how we are saved. Secondly, we have access to God through Jesus plus no one. Under the 
Old Covenant and ancient Judaism, that was before Jesus, Levitical priests were mediators between God and humanity. Priests, these Levitical priests made sacrifices in the Jewish temple to atone for, the, for people's sins. And within the Jewish temple, there was this place which was called the Holy of Holies. This was a section of the Jewish temple that was separated from the rest of the temple with a huge curtain that the high priest could only enter into once a year to access God's presence on behalf of the Jewish people. Then, our Heavenly Father sent Jesus to die on a cross in our place as the perfect, sinless, final sacrifice to once and for all atone for our penalty of sin against him. And the apostle Matthew, who was, eyewitness, who was an eyewitness to all this, recorded what happened the moment that Jesus died on the cross. He records, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn. The curtain that separated the holies of the holies from the rest of the Jewish temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rock split. God tore the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the Jewish temple in two to demonstrate that he could be accessed by anyone through faith in Jesus from that point forward. The Apostle John, who is Jesus' best friend and one of his inner three in his, in his, of his apostles wrote, if we confess our sins, to who? Who's John talking about? He's talking about confessing our sins directly to Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us of our sins. Who will forgive us of our sins? Not a priest. He's referring to Jesus himself. He is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us of our sins. And he will purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus alone has the authority to forgive sin. We confess to him alone because he alone is our mediator. The apostle Paul wrote, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And then the writer of Hebrews wrote, therefore since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. No fear. No guilt. Confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The Catholic Church teaches the Catholic priesthood are the mediators between God and people. The writers of the New Testament state that we access God through Jesus plus no one. Furthermore, look at what the Apostle Peter, who is part of Jesus' inner three, said about those who have put their faith in Jesus by asking him to be the forgiver of their sins and leader of their life. But you, you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, you are a chosen people. And you are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not called a people, but now you, and you, and you. 
And you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. You see, rather than accepting the new covenant, New Testament teaching that all followers of Christ, all people who have put their faith in Jesus, are now part of, all people who are now part of Jesus' ecclesia are a royal priesthood who have access to God, the Catholic Church went back to the Old Covenant, Old Testament, Levitical priesthood model, where priests were the mediators between God and humanity. Finally, the Catholic Church teaches their traditions and their doctrines possess equal authority to that of the Bible. But we believe Scripture plus nothing is our only authority. We believe God communicated, what, what God communicated through the writers of Scripture is our only authority for faith and life. The Catholic Church teaches the Pope's words are infallible and authoritative. We believe God's word, the Bible, alone is infallible and authoritative. But before we move on and I wrap this up, I want to make sure we're clear on what I mean by Scripture. We believe that there's 66 total books that make up what we call the Bible. Two big sections. You have the Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament, once called the Hebrew Scriptures, consists of 39 books. All 39 of those documents were written before Jesus, and they were written to the Hebrew people, who became known as the Israelites, who became known as the Jews. The New Testament consists of 27 books. All 27 documents were written after Jesus' death and resurrection in the first century by Jesus' apostles or someone they affirmed. And they were written to followers of Christ, to the church, to Jesus' ecclesia, to you and to me. Now, there's a few extra books in the Catholic Bible. These extra books are known as the Apocrypha. I just want to say, I could talk about this for a long time, but don't have time, obviously. I just want to say one thing about these apocryphal books. It wasn't until the year 1546 that the Catholic Church declared these extra books to be part of the Catholic Bible. And that declaration came in response to the Reformation. The Catholic Church added these books because they contained support for Catholic teachings, Catholic doctrines, and Catholic traditions that were rejected during the Reformation. Teachings and doctrines and traditions that aren't all necessarily bad, but are just inconsistent with the Old Testament and New Testament documents. Therefore, teachings, doctrines, and traditions that are not inerrant and authoritative because they're man-made and not God-ordained. The Catholic, Church, Catholic doctrine states, the Pope is the head of Christ's church, the Catholic Church is the authority. Biblical doctrine states, Jesus plus no one is the head of his church, and Scripture plus nothing is our only authority. Now, if this is true, if it's true that Jesus plus no one is the head of his church, and Scripture plus nothing is our only authority, if that is true, it means that we are saved by grace through faith alone. And you need nothing else to get you saved or to keep you saved. If it's true then, 
It means that when you put your faith in Jesus by asking him to be the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life, that you can have assurance that your salvation is secure. If this is true, it means that you are free to follow Jesus instead of religious rules. If it's true, it means you don't have to live your life trying to earn salvation or trying to earn a right relationship with God through a set of religious works and rules and sacraments. If this is true, it means you have direct access to God and his forgiveness and his voice and his leading and his mercy and his life and his hope and his peace and his his joy, and his redemption today. If this is true, it means you can start relating to God as your heavenly father who loves you. If this is true, it means you can stop viewing God religiously in fear and start pursuing him relationally in love. And if this is true, it means you can walk away from your religious guilt and walk into a life-transforming relationship with Jesus. Now, based on everything I presented, I think it's worth assessing, especially if you grew up Catholic, who you're looking to for authority, salvation, grace, and access to God. And here's the question that you can assess with, is who is your head and what's your authority? Who is your head, what was your authority? Is your head the Pope or is it Jesus? And by the way, it can't be both. Is your authority the Catholic Church or is it Scripture? And by the way, it can't be both. If you believe Jesus plus no one is the head of his church and Scripture plus nothing is our only authority, I strongly encourage you to do one of two things. First, I encourage you, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, to do it. If you haven't asked Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life, then do it. Regardless of your church background, regardless if you've been baptized, regardless of what belief you have, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, then do it. My second encouragement is for those of you that have. It's to begin following Jesus based on what God has ordained through the writers of Scripture instead of through, what the church, instead of through church tradition that man has made. And you do that by taking every next step you can to follow and obey Jesus alone as your leader and your authority and your head and your Lord based on what he has communicated through the writers of Scripture. Because when you do, guilt will flee and fear will flee and freedom will come and the life and hope and peace and joy and fulfillment that can only be found in Jesus will begin to flourish. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, that was a lot. And um, I just pray that whatever was said, however good or bad it was presented, that we all walk out of here, Jesus, just looking to you and to follow you alone, to place our trust in you alone, to find our salvation and our peace and joy in you alone. God, for everyone who's never put their faith in you, Jesus, I pray that right now that they choose to do that, declare their need for a Savior right where they're at, that right now they choose to say, Jesus, I, I trust that you are that Savior because of your death and resurrection, and that right now, Jesus, 
whether out on their couch and in this room, that they put their faith in you, that right now they ask Jesus to be the forgiver of their sins, their Savior. And they ask you to be the leader of their life, their Lord. Lord, all this just seems too good to be true. But it must just point to your extravagant love for us. So we praise you and we say thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.